You're listening to audio from The Orchard Church in Collierville, Tennessee. If you would like more information about our church or our ministries, please visit theorchardchurch.com. So go to, go to Psalm 131, if you would. Psalm 131. And I'll just tell you right up front, this is a short psalm. It's very short. It's easy to read. It's really hard to live because it talks about an experience that all of us have and wish we had less of and an experience that all of us wish we had a little more of. The experience that we all have and wish we had a little bit less of is pressure. And the experience that we all would like to have a little bit more of is peace. So, so this psalm, what it does is it, it shows us the reality of pressure and it gives a picture, paints a picture of peace. So if you would stand, let me read Psalm 131. And just follow along with me as we read. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quietened my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. This is God's word, and you can be seated. So I ask some of the women who are on our staff here and some of the women around the church to answer this question, what's pressure? Or to finish this sentence, pressure is, for me, pressure is, and let me read to you some of the responses that I got this last week. Pressure is giving birth. Pressure is trying to keep up with everything, having too much to do and too little time to do it. Pressure is raising my kids by myself. Pressure is having to work when I long to be home with my children. Pressure is social media. Makes you feel less than perfect. Pressure is having my kids involved in everything. Pressure is wanting to have children and being disappointed each month. Pressure is trying to be a good example to my, to my kids when I'm having a bad day and all I want to do is crawl into a hole. Pressure is making sure my kids are emotionally stable even though they don't know how to or won't tell us. No one notices when things are off with their kids the way moms do. Pressure is three different children on three different ball te- teams with three different games at three different locations all in the same day, and my husband's out of town. <laughs> pressure is Mother's Day itself. Pressure is being the mom of grown kids, having a child on drugs that you've kicked out of the house, and now you don't know where he is. Pressure is seeing other children's achievements, and yours are not keeping up. This came from one of our, our staff who will remain nameless. Pressure is always having to cook to determine what to cook. Why can't men cook dinner? <laughs> Pressure is actually feeding my children. Why do they have to eat every day? They're always hungry. Pressure is making quality time with your children. Pressure is calendaring, driving everywhere. Why can't I just stay on the couch? Pressure is feeling I'm failing God and my husband because I'm too tired to be the kind of wife I should be. Pressure is my mother-in-law coming to visit for 10 days. Pressure is having the pastor ask you about pressure. (laughs) It is the one experience every one of us understands. Um, It's a fact of life. And it's not all bad, is it? I mean, pressure can take coal and make it diamonds. Pressure can cause you to change your priorities. Pressure can literally drive you to your knees to seek God. 
Some of us work better under pressure. We really do. But on the other hand, pressure can crush you. Pressure can drive you away from God. Pressure can make you bitter with the people that you live with. Pressure can rob you of any kind of of joy that you have in your life. And what David does is help us to find peace in pressure, the time of pressure. You look under, you look beneath the surface of of a pressure-packed person, um, and you'll find a lot of stuff like fear, I'm not doing enough, guilt, I should be doing more, perfectionism, it's never good enough, a weariness, you know, if you're tired, a good night's sleep will restore you, but if you're weary, it just takes more than one night's sleep, discouragement, hopelessness, depression, it's not going to get any better, shame, not what I, what I should be, we all know about pressure. What we all don't know is how do you find peace under pressure? And the picture that he gives here of peace is, is really interesting. He contrasts a weaned child with an unweaned child. And we don't use the word wean very much, so let me see if I can uh, give a word image. When our children were very small, four of them uh, in the home, kind of like Adam's kids, um, and the kids were nursing. There's a phenomenon, that if you've never seen it, it's amazing. It's called rooting. Rooting. Uh, when it's near feeding time, if, if a child was within half a mile of Ruthie's chest, that head starts bobbing and burrowing, and the kid gets restless, and he's, and he's digging, and there's no contentment. He's, he's demanding. There's no peace. He, he has this got-to-get-to-it mindset. You just see it in, in, the, in the child. They're restless because mom is security. Mom is, is food. Now contrast that with a weaned child who can lay comfortably on mom's breast or sit in mom's lap and just be happy to be there. Just satisfied. It's a picture of peace. It's a picture of, of contentment, satisfaction, just enjoying her company, not needing anything from her. And some of you, some of you hear this and you go, I don't know who wrote that, but they, they don't understand my life. They don't understand my job, and they don't understand my family. It must have been some sentimental, sissy, namby-pamby kind of person who wrote this. I want you to see who wrote this. Look at, look at the top of the psalm. It says, a psalm of a sense of David. What do you know about David? He was a husband eight times over, and some of those marriages were not any good. So David understood the pressure of a bad marriage. He was a a father, 10 different kids, and one of the kids was so rebellious, he tried to take his dad's throne and even slept with some of his dad's women. So he understood the pressure of rebellious children. He was an athlete. He was a hunter. He was an outdoorsman. He, he, He rose from keeping sheep all the way to the palace. He became a military leader who consolidated and united this massive kingdom. So he understood the pressures of leadership. He was an artist, songwriter, builder, um, amassed this huge fortune. He, he understood the pressure of money management. He was a um, musician. So he understood the highs and the lows of emotions that creative people feel. At times he had the affections of everybody, and at times it seemed like everybody was against him. So he knew what it was like to, to feel alone, isolated, 
in a cave all by yourself. He had not always been like a weaned child. He knew what it was like to churn, to demand restless nights when you can't sleep. But he said, I've quieted my soul like a weaned child. And and what's amazing is this man isn't noisy inside anymore. He doesn't have a lot of noise going on in his head. He's not upset. He's not obsessed. Pressure to succeed doesn't crush him. Pressure of failing doesn't rob him of of joy. It's It's really rare to find someone who's quiet inside. They just have a calm spirit. Are you quiet inside? What's the noise going on in your head? So what I want us to do is is I want us to spend just a few moments with David, a man who knew what it was like to have peace in the midst of unbelievable pressure and, and pain and all these circumstances he didn't understand, confusion. And he writes this brief little psalm so that we can find the same kind of peace that, that he found. And you can break this psalm up in two. I, I hear it saying two things. Number one, it says it describes why we feel so much pressure, some of us, the sources of unusual pressure. And he tells us two things that he's learned that produce calm and peace and quiet inside. So there's, that's the outline. Sources of pressure and where do you find peace under pressure. So he, he mentions three different sources of pressure, where pressure comes from. One is, and this is implied, unlimited activities. You ever feel like your schedule is out of control? James um, Dobson, you know, fame, focus on the family fame, said this, the number one cause of turmoil in Christian families is overcommitment. One of the best gifts a parent can give a child is simplicity. There's so much clutter in our lives, both material things, time commitments that simply don't need to be. And David says, I do not concern myself with great matters or matters too wonderful for me. He says, I have learned I can't do everything. I can't be everywhere. I can't know everything, and I can't control everything happening around me. He says, I've learned to say no. One word, two letters, hard for pressurized people to say no. And Jesus was a master at living under pressure with a sense of peace inside. You just hardly ever see Jesus in a hurry. He lives out of this quiet on the inside. No noise going on in his head. And if you read his his biography, it's amazing because he is under incredible pressure that would crush most of us. He has people pulling, pulling at him all the time, constant interruptions, very little personal privacy at all, very little personal space. He has to get in a boat and row out in the water to keep people from just pushing on him. He's ridiculed. He's criticized every time he turns around, but he lives out of this quiet center in his soul. How did he do that? Well, he knew who he was, so he didn't try to be someone that he wasn't, and he refused to be pressured into being somebody he wasn't. He knew who he was trying to please in life. Back when he was 12 years old, he said, you just need to know I'm I'm about my father's business. His agenda is my agenda. And he knew what he was trying to accomplish, which is why the night before he died, he said, um, I've completed the work you gave me. How can you say that? There are still hungry people. There are still people who need to be healed. How can you say that? And even on the cross, he said, it's finished. 
I've done everything you want me to do. Jesus lived by a set of priorities. And if you don't set your priorities, someone else will set them for you. So he lived with a sense of the Father's agenda. He had this practice of getting alone before every major decision just to quiet his soul, take a deep breath, and say, what do you want me to do? To seek guidance and and direction from his Father. Jesus lived from this deep, quiet place. He handled the pressure of his schedule by discerning what is it that I'm, I'm to do in this moment? What is it that the Father has called me uh, to do? Someone said, you either decide what's important for you or someone else will decide that for you. And Jesus just handled pressure by living for an audience of one. He lived a pretty simple life. So why don't we? Why do we have these insane schedules? And that's the second thing he's going to talk about, unrealistic expectations. He says in verse 2, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. A few years ago, I had a mom made a, make an unbelievably candid, transparent confession to me. She said this, I guess I'm trying to live out my life through my daughter. I pushed her into cheerleading and ballet and into dating. It wasn't as much, it wasn't as much about her as it was about me. And I really admired her honesty. And David would say, that is seeking, seeking something too wonderful, too great for you. Uh, Colleen Evans was a pastor's wife in Washington, D.C. She was a writer. She was a speaker. She was the chairperson of the Billy Graham Crusade in Washington, D.C. She was a board member of World Vision. And she heard Mother Teresa speak at this lunch. And she was so moved. She went up to Mother Teresa afterwards. And she said, Mother, what can I do to help the world? And Mother Teresa said, go home and love your husband, and love your children. And Colleen Evans said, that was hard to hear. So what's behind unlimited activities and unrealistic expectations? And David goes right to the heart of the greatest hindrance to peace in our lives, and that is the improper attitude of pride. Look at verse 1. Just look at your Bible at verse 1. Oh, Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. And think of what the opposite of that might be. My heart is proud. I'm absorbed in myself. My eyes are haughty. I look down on other people and I chase after things too great and too difficult for me. So of course I'm noisy. I'm restless inside. It comes naturally like a hungry infant fussing on his mother's lap. I'm like a hungry, hungry infant. I'm restless with my demands and worries. So why schedule is out of control? Why do we live with these unrealistic expectations? Why do we want so much? And David says, it just comes down to a proud heart. We just have to somehow feed our egos. We think we have to know what's best. And so we overestimate our time and our energy. We just take ourselves too seriously. I was in a a church one time and heard a pastor make a a sermon about uh, a capital campaign in the church And he said, I want to give you 10 words that are the key to us raising this money. 10 words of two letters each. If it is to be, it is up to me. And I sat there thinking, where's God in this? Yeah, we have our responsibilities, but is that what we're leaning on? That that redefines pressure uh, to me. And by the way, ambition, desire, even for great things, is not bad. Scripture says if you'll commit yourself and delight yourself in the Lord, He'll give you the desires of your heart, Psalm 37, 4. 
And sometimes I think our ambitions for our children are too small. I think we want too little for them. Ignatius Loyola spoke to students in an academy in France, and he said, give up your small ambitions. Give up your small ambitions and go to the ends of the earth for Christ. And thousands of students left and did that. What if parents today said, my ambition for you is that you give up your small ambitions. Go to the ends of the earth. Do business there. Whatever. For Christ. Think about an infant who is not weaned. An infant who is still at mom's breast and expects everything on demand. You know, when we lived in the Dominican Republic, an average uh, child would be three or four before they were weaned. Well, we were sitting in a group one time, and this kid walks up to his mom. He must have been three or four. Looks up at her and says, one word. I'm not going to use that word. One word, give it to me. Give it to me. Just demanding. I'm the center of the universe. It's all about me. It revolves around me. It's what I want. Feed me, change me, hold me, comfort me, and expects mom to indulge his every whim. Now contrast that with a weaned child who can just sit in mom's lap and not demanding anything from her, but just sit there just happy to be with her. Just quiet. Just Who knows? I'm going to be fed. They are going to feed me I won't starve in the next 2.7 seconds. They're going to take care of me. And David says, that's how my soul is with God. He's going to take care of me. I know God's going to give me what I need. And so he's restful. He's content. He's, he's satisfied. He's got this peace in the presence of, of God himself. So the question is, how do you go from being a rooting, like a rooting baby, how, how do you go from being restless and under pressure. and How do you go from to being a, a peace-filled, quiet person, even though the pressure is there? It's not easy, and it doesn't take place instantaneously. And you can imagine a child who's four years old and is still breastfeeding, and the mom weans him. How difficult would that be? And sometimes for God to wean us, it means loss. It means being deprived of things we think we need, it means confusion. It means pain. It's all a part of the weaning process because God wants us to be mature. He wants us to grow up. So sometimes God will just take things from us. He's weaning us. And David says, I have learned two things as God weans me, two things that help me have a quiet heart. Here's the first one. He says, finding peace means I assume responsibility for my own contentment. You catch that in verse 2? He says, I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. In other words, my, pee, my contentment is nobody's responsibility but mine. It's not my husband's, not my kids, not my parents. My peace is no one else's responsibility but mine. In fact, three different ways David says, I've quieted my soul. I choose to quit demanding God fix this. God fix the people in my life. I choose to quit screaming when things don't go my way. I'm learning to rest. I'm learning to be quiet. I'm not the center of my own life. I may be king of Israel, but I'm not the king of my own life. Only you can slow your life down. Only you can limit your activities. Only you can right-size your expectations. Only you can trust the Lord for yourself. 
You may not be able to control what happens to you. You probably can't. We live under the illusion of control. But you can control your response to what happens to you. In fact, when our kids were small and, and they were all involved in sports and, and activities and um, at once four kids and they're getting to be teenagers and we had to come to a place in our home where we said, look, you can't do more than two things at once. And in fact, we can't be at everything that you do. We want to, but we just can't. Just trying to take responsibility for limiting what was happening. Only you can purify your motives. Only you can put God at the center of your life. And in Christ, you do have the ability to be like this weaned child. In fact, Paul said, this, he, Paul said, I, I had to learn this myself. He said, I've learned in whatever situation I'm in to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. To put it in today's language, I have learned to fly first class. And I've learned to fly coach in the middle seat between a screaming baby and a very large person. I've not learned that yet. I've still on the way. But he says, it's, and you notice this is a prayer. In the Hebrew, the first word in this, it's, it's a prayer. Jehovah, Yahweh, Lord. It's, it's a prayer. And he, he's not saying it comes from me. I have to take responsibility for my own peace, but the peace doesn't come from me. It's not a baby looking in a mirror at itself. He means Jesus is like a mother and he's the peace. He's the one who comforts me. He's the one who consoles me, holds me. But he says, I have to pursue that. I have to seek this. I have to want this. I've calmed and quieted my soul in God. You know, it's, it's possible to be content in something without being content with something. I think that's what Paul is saying. All kinds of things happen to us that we don't like. Life is far from perfect. There's all kinds of stuff that happens. And if you base your contentment on what is happening to you, your life is going to be like a roller coaster because it's going to be constantly changing. But you can be content in things that you're not content with. And I think that's what he is saying here. I'm, I find my contentment in a God who does not change. And then he turns and he wants all of his people to know this. He turns and says, oh, Israel, hope in God. Seek your calmness of heart. Seek God. And this is the second thing. First, he says, I have to take responsibility for my own contentment. And second, he says, I find hope in God himself. He says, this is what I've learned. Painful. It was difficult. It wasn't easy. But I've learned whatever state I am to be like a weaned child by trusting the one who made the highest mountains and caused them a speck of dust and framed the deepest sea and it looks like a spoonful of water and has counted and named every one of the billions and billions of stars and knows every hair on my head and the one who is great and strong and sovereign and rules over all things and is kind and loving and good. I put my hope in him. So he's turned his eyes from himself. He's turned his eyes toward God. What he's doing is preaching the gospel to himself. He's reminding himself, God is with me. God knows me. My times are in his hands. Now, what happens when you do that? I'll tell you one thing happens. It gives you perspective. It changes the way you see things. 
I've just been diagnosed with a very bad illness. I've just been removed from my job. I, I had a career. It's been swallowed up. I just had the, the woman that I wanted to spend my life with and Mary tell me she wants nothing more to do with me. I got these kids that seem to, to be scheming to drive me crazy. But I've learned something about God, who he is, what he is like. So I don't concern myself with great matters. There are things happening I do not understand. I, and I wouldn't comprehend them if I lived forever and ever. Tried to under, I don't have to understand it all. I know the one who does understand. And I know the one who is committed not only to my good, but to make me like his own son and who causes all things to work together for that good. I know him and I trust him. He weaves a pattern from my life and it's intricate and it's designed for me. It's a kind of contentment that's not rooted in what is happening, the circumstances of my life. It's rooted in a God himself who never changes. You know, when I was growing up in church, we, we sang a song, um, and I've not sung it in, uh, golly, years. I'm going to read the words of the first verse to you. Day by day, and with each passing moment, strength I find to meet my trials here. Trusting in my Father's wise bestowment, I've no cause for worry or for fear. He whose heart is kind beyond all measure gives unto each day what he deems best. Lovingly, it's part in pain and pleasure, mingling toil with peace and rest. So how do you pray when you want to put your hope in God? What does that mean? How do you put your hope in God? Psalm 130 is a parallel psalm with this one. It carries the same themes. And I just want to read Psalm 130 because it helps us to know how to put our hope in God. It begins like this. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. There it is. To hope in God means to wait on God. Hoping and waiting are synonyms. You go, well, what am I waiting for? Well, he tells us. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. You're waiting for a word from God. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all of his iniquities. Pressure-packed people don't like to wait. Their motto is, don't <laughs> don't just stand there, do something. And waiting means don't just do something, stand there. And you say, what am I waiting for? You're waiting for a word from God. This is what Jesus did. Just trying to get some direction from God. It changes your perspective entirely to, to wait before. You say, I got four kids in my home. How in the world am I supposed to find time to, to, to meet with God? Susanna Wesley, the mother of John and Charles Wesley, the founders of Methodism, great men of God, had 18 kids at home. 18. When did she find time with God? She would stand in the middle of the floor in that little house and throw her apron over her head. And when her apron was over her head, she's with God. And the kids know, Lord help them if they mess with mom when their apron's on her head. She's meeting with the Lord. She's 
and found a way to quiet her soul. And what's God going to say to you if you wait on him, if you hope in him? I think he's going to say two things to you. He's going to say, I love you. Because he talks about his steadfast love, one of God's favorite words, his steadfast love, loyal, unfailing. If I hope in the Lord, if I wait on the Lord, I'm going to hear him say, I love you. And the cure for a proud heart is to know how deeply you are loved. He's going to say, I'll be your treasure. I'll satisfy you. What a mom says to a weaning child. And he'll say, I forgive you. It's in verses 7 and 8. You begin to peel back the layers of pressure from our lives. And what do you find? You find a lot of guilt. You find a lot of shame. You feel like you failed God. You failed your spouse. You failed your kids. And that sense of failure just drives you to overcompensate, to push, to root. And the Lord says, I forgive you. You don't have to prove anything at all. I love you. I forgive you. And I've got a word for you. Now I want to end with this. Annie Dillard wrote a book, kind of made her famous as a writer in some circles, called A Pilgrim at Tinder Creek. And she begins the book like this. A couple of summers ago, I was walking along the edge of the island to see what I could see in the water, mainly to scare frogs. Frogs have an inelegant way of taking off from invisible positions on the bank just ahead of your feet in dire panic, emitting a froggy yike and splashing into the water. At the end of the island, I noticed a small green frog. He was exactly half in, half out of the water, looking like a schematic diagram of an amphibian, but he didn't jump. I crept closer, just four feet away. He was a very small frog with wide, dull eyes, and just as I looked at him, he slowly crumpled and began to sag. The spirit vanished from his eyes as if snuffed. His skin emptied and drooped. His very skull seemed to collapse and settle like a kicked tent. He was shrinking before my eyes like a deflating football. I watched the taut, glistening skin on his shoulders ruck and rumple and fall. And soon part of his skin, formless as a prick balloon, lay in folding floats like bright scum on top of the water. I gaped, bewildered. An oval shadow hung in the water behind the drained frog, and then the shadow glittered, glided away, and the frog's skin started to sink. I had read about the giant water bug, but never seen one. It eats insects, tadpoles, fish, frogs. Its grasping forearms are mighty and hooked inward. It seizes a victim with those legs, hugs it tight, and paralyzes it with enzymes injected during a vicious bite. That one bite's the only bite it ever takes. Through the puncture, shoot the poisons that dissolve the muscles, the victim's muscles and bones and organs, all but the skin, and through it, the giant water bug sucks out the victim's body, reduced to a juice. This event is quite common in warm, fresh water. The frog I saw was being sucked by a giant water bug. That's a picture of pressure. It just sucks you dry. So your mom wasn't what she needed to be for you. It just sucks you dry. Or you don't feel like you are the mom you should be. You just feel like being sucked dry. And I read that because God is not like that. Mighty tentacles that grab you and crush you, injecting poison to liquefy you. No, he has arms that reach out and hold you and he breathes life into you not taking life from you.
You know, the best thing that you can do today, if you're a mom, if you're a dad, if you're a young person, take this psalm this afternoon and pray through it line by line. Just ask God to be that life-giving peace on the inside that's equal to the pressure on the outside. And just sit before the Lord quietly for a few moments. See what that does for you. See if it does not quiet your soul. I want you to watch this video. One of the ways that God speaks peace and quiet into our own hearts is through our children. So watch this. I'm a perfectionist, and so that's hard with kids. There's definitely days when I have my doubts about my abilities. I struggle with my temper. I struggle with like how I react with situations. I wish I knew how to, I guess, just calm myself before speaking to them. I wish I was better at taking time to sit down and just listen more to my child. I wish I was more confident in being a mom. I'm not the most patient person in the world. Patience. Patience is far and away probably the biggest struggle. I just want them to know just how much I love them. My mom is totally awesome. She's fun to snuggle with. Pretty, funny. She does cook a lot of food for me. She's just unique. That's why I love her so much. We go on dates together. Like, we go shopping. She loves me a lot. I have a lot of favorite things about my mom. We like to watch movies together and color and stuff. We go to church together, we volunteer together. She is like my heart, I guess you could say, because she's that close to me. My favorite thing is to jump on a trampoline with my mom. That's my most favorite thing to go up high. We like get ice cream or something and like you go to the nail salon and have fun. <laughs> my mommy's my hero. She's pretty and beautiful. She is my hero. She just will care about me and just always love me forever. She's the best. <laughs> That's so awesome. <laughs> I always seem to focus mostly on the negative, and I guess I can walk out of here and say that I'm doing something great, and that my child is viewing me in totally different lenses as I view myself. So that's, that's inspiring. This is my calling. This is my job. This is what I love to do, and I will do it better and with love each and every day, because those kids count on me, and they love me for what I'm doing.